0: I'm going to be reading from the book of James this morning. And I'm going to begin reading in chapter one, verse two. It says, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The Lord's word.
1: James, like so many other books of the Bible, um, addresses perspective in life, um, that he deals with not only physical realities, but spiritual realities, and that's the same with trials. I think one of the things that we need to understand is that things are not as they seem, or things are not only as they seem. In other words, there's much going on in our lives than meets the naked eye or meets the physical realities of our circumstances. So James is wanting us to dive into that a little bit. Another thing I think that as we approach uh, this first chapter of James and what we've been saying about trials is that when you think about our worldview, everybody has a worldview. So a way in which we interpret life You might not be able to articulate the philosophical underpinnings of your worldview, but you do have a grid through which you work out significant questions of life. For instance, um, a worldview addresses the question of why is there something and not nothing? You got to work that through. And and that's an important question of life. Why am I here and not here or not here? Um, uh, Worldview will ask the question, what gives meaning to life? Where does meaning come from? A a worldview will address the issue of morality. Why is there good and bad? Or why is there not good and bad? Or is there anything such as good and bad? A worldview will also address uh, such questions as what happens when I die? Does anything happen when I die? Is there life after death? And so a, a worldview is one that answers the big questions in life. And the best worldview is the one that answers those four questions with the most coherence. And I would stake my life on the fact that I believe the Christian worldview answers those four questions with the most coherence of any worldview around us. But trials are something that needs to be, need to be understood through the grid of a worldview. We all face trials, and, and your worldview will help you make sense of your trials. Or they, they won't necessarily help you make sense of it, but the worldview is what, what you will, um, uh, how you will assess what's going on in your life. And again, I believe that the biblical worldview is the best worldview through which to understand the trials that we face in life, the hills that we have to climb, the valleys that we find ourselves in. And they will test that worldview. And so James tells us some things about trials which fit the Christian worldview. Uh, He will remind us that there's a purpose to trials. Trials aren't just random, meaningless events that happen in our lives. There's a purpose behind them. He will also tell us that there's a terminus to our trials. They're they're not something uh, sort of like karma that just keep coming around and around and around and around and will never end. There's a linear view to history, and therefore, because history is linear, our trials have a terminus point. They might terminate while we are alive, or they will certainly terminate when we die. And so uh, James helps us understand that reality and view of our worldview. And so the various trials that you and I experience in our life, these are not random, meaningless parts of life, but they are purposeful, they are intentional, and they are terminal. James begins to take us through that thinking. And I think verse 12 is a summary of his thinking on trials. He says, we are going to fall into trials, so to speak. They're, they're going to happen. That's what he tells us in, in verse 2 but he says trials are meant to do something they're not meaningless they're meant to um, uh, develop within us endurance or steadfastness and the reason that we are to um, learn or grow in steadfastness and endurance is so that we might have character and character brings about perfection or completion in our lives and so there's a purpose to the trials that we face Knowing the general outcome of our trials then helps us to do what he says at the very beginning, consider it all joy when you experience trials of all kinds. And then verses 5 to to 10 talk about when we face those trials and we're mixed up and then we ask God for wisdom to make sense of them. And as Pastor Barry said in verses 9 to 11, then God begins to give us wisdom by showing us the brevity of our life, by showing us that we all come to God in the same way. Our boast is in the Lord, not in our stuff or the things that we hold on dearly to. And then he brings it all to a conclusion in verse 12. I do see verse 12 as a conclusion to verses 2 to 11, not as the introduction to the verses to come. Verses 2 to 11 are really about external trials. Things that happen outside of us. Sure, they affect us inside, but they're outside of us. When we get to verse 13, he's going to talk about temptation. And temptation is inside of us. And so as I see it, verse 12 is a summary of where he's come. You'll notice in the notes, and it's not a mistake, that um, I talk about trial singular. That's what the text says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Man is, again, as you understand, it's a universal term, meaning men and women. Some of your Bibles might say blessed is the one who endures under trials. It's actually singular, and so that's why I'm using the singular. So four points, and we'll develop a few of them along the way. The first is simply the blessedness of trial. Blessed is the man or the woman who remains steadfast under trial. Uh, that's a beatitude, blessed. We, you, you, when, when we say that, probably many of you are familiar with scriptures. Immediately go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. You could also go to Psalm 1. Same um, Greek word that's used there in the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. Blessed is the man who walks not in the council. Um, you can also find it in Psalm 119. Uh, blessed is he whose way is blameless. It's, it's found in a lot of places. And sometimes people will translate it simply, all oh, the happiness of. Like, it's a feeling of happiness. But this blessedness has more than that to it. There is a sense of joy that we have, but the blessedness that, that, that is understood behind that Greek word is a blessedness that comes from realizing that God is involved in what I'm going through. That blessed am I because God is interested in my life. Blessed am I because God is walking me through this. I'm blessed because I don't go through this alone. And so the blessedness or the joy is attached to a divine involvement in the trial that I'm going through in life. For instance, David will say in one place, It is good for me that I was afflicted so that I do not go astray from your law. God is involved in my life, He's, he's bringing about difficult circumstances so that I stay on the path. I'm blessed. In another place, we, we read the crucible is for silver, the smelter for gold, and the Lord is the tester of hearts. Thank you, Father, that you test my heart. As I walk through this trial, you're with me, you're, you're, you're beside me, you're, you're, you're testing me to bring out the purity of my love and affection for you. In another place, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. Blessed is the one who is disciplined by the Lord. So again, our trials aren't random occurrences. They're not purposeless or meaningless or cruel twists of faith. If we're a child of God and we experience various trials along the way, consider yourself blessed. Blessed because God is walking with you. Do you ever ask yourself? Do you ever state to yourself as you go through a trial, Father, I'm so blessed that you're leading me through this. Sounds odd, doesn't it? It strikes us as, no, that's not right. But James is saying, no, it is right. How blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. You might recall verse 4 when we looked at that a few weeks ago. And there, uh, James looked at our response to trials in the passive. He says, let endurance have its way. In other words, don't, don't fight it. Don't kick against it. Don't look for a way out of the trial that you're in. Let, just let endurance work its way out until the trial is over. Let it bring about its completion in your life. Now here, he says, blessed is the one who remains under the trial. It's it's more of an active attitude and determination of our heart now as believers. So one, there's a passive, okay, I will let this thing work itself out. I won't try and find an escape route. And then the second one is I will stay under this trial until it's over so that I can experience the fullness of endurance, the completeness of the work that it's intended to do in my life. And we see that in various ways, don't we? Like you, in sports, you need to endure the practices. You need to endure the, the hard stuff in life. You need to remain under the coaches berating of you so that you can play the game and then maybe win the prize. You need to finish that last year of university even though the last thing in you that you want to do is finish. You want to get out from under that. But you stay in it. You finish it through to the end. You might have a difficult marriage and it's it's just plowing down on you and everything in you and everyone around you is saying, leave, just get out. Why are you there? And you stay under the difficulty of that marriage and you find that at the end there's a wonderful fruit of endurance that comes from having hung in there. James is clear that the blessing in the trial is not in being delivered from the trial, but rather it is in enduring through the trial. Not blessed is the one who is delivered from all his trials, but blessed is the one who remains steadfast under the trial. So loved ones, consider yourselves blessed by God. If you're walking through a trial right now, look for his fingerprints. Look for his presence. Look for evidence that he is working out his purposes in that situation in your life and the lives of those around you. Second thing about trial that we learn is the duration of the trial. For when he has stood the very language suggests an end when he has been approved i kept thinking If some of you listen to the radio and you hear those commercials what rhymes with abthroofed"? approved approved approved. Approved. Uh, approved means you've been accepted it means that you've passed the test so blessed is the one who has stood there's an end to the trial that we're facing the furnace is turned off the difficulty is behind you now in Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 um, Jesus speaks to the church at Smyrna and he says do not fear what you're about to suffer behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life you see what John does he, he picks up this language again and he says speaks about 10 days for 10 days you are about to suffer you will have tribulation Now, you might want to look at that and say, that's literal. There are many that look at that and say, that's a literal 10 days. I tend to look at it and say, no, 10 is the number of completeness. And so there is a time at which that trial will be complete. I have five fingers on this hand, five fingers on that hand. I I have the complete number of digits. Um, And so whether you take it literally or whether you take it figuratively, the point is that there is a duration, a set duration to the trial that God will lead us through. And so he says, when you have stood or when you are approved, there's a terminus to that trial. I am, uh, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion of that day. There's a completion to the work that God is doing in our lives. The trial may end during our lifetime or the trial may end when we die. But there is a terminus to our trial. Stand then, so that you can hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. There's a reward in trial. Blessed is the one who endures under trial, so that when he has stood, he will receive the crown of life. There's the reward, the crown of life. There's so much to just work through in this certain phrase right here Uh, the first general point to realize is the emphasis is not on the crown but on what the crown represents life the crown of life that's what ought to stick in our head and we ought to say well what's life well life is eternal life and so he who endures to the end will see will receive the crown of eternal life That eternal life is a gift that God will give us finally and completely at the end of our either physical time on earth or when Jesus comes again. It's his gift and there's so many scriptures that point about the fact that when we die or when Christ comes back is when we receive the full gift of eternal life. Titus says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Jesus reminded his disciples, truly I say to you, there is nobody who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. In the parable of the sheep and goats when jesus concludes and he has the the wicked and the righteous standing before them he he says this is in the summary of it all he says and these referring to the goats they will go away into eternal destruction but these the sheep will go into eternal life and so there's this reference that james is saying james is saying the terminus of our uh, of our of our trials will be when we receive the crown of life and God gives us that eternal gift forever and ever the fullness and the completeness of eternal life the crown i think the, the imagery of the crown ought to be that we see this is worth fighting for this is worth striving for that this is a prize that i want to achieve i want that crown and so that I think is why the word crown might be there, but the emphasis is on what the crown represents which is life I understand some wrestle with the notion of rewards I've had a lot of these conversations over the years I've wrestled with it myself how how is it that that, that we should even look for rewards why should a Christian be interested in rewards why should I try and motivate my good deeds or why should I try and motivate my righteous behavior by looking ahead and saying, well, if I do this, I'm going to receive this reward. Or even worse, I think when we look at that is that, that mindset that says, well, you know, um, uh, uh, I, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be good and I'm going to do that because at the end is a reward, which is just the wrong motivation for it. And that's true. And we ought never to motivate our good works or our seeking the Lord because we think we're going to get a crown or reward at the end. But on the other hand, the Bible talks again and again and again about how God will reward the faithful. God will reward the obedient. He will reward those who have lived in the light of his way here on earth. And so there's a tension that's there. Um, But there is clearly promised to those who love God the crown of life. The image of crown uh, that would have flooded the first century uh, um, readers is probably not the first thing that goes through your mind. When, when I mention crown to you, I bet you the vast majority of what you thought about is some image of uh, Queen Elizabeth or some king with this massive crown with all bejeweled and studded all around it and a big honking dinah, a diamond at the front and their necks kind of contorting because they can't hold it on their head. That's not at all what the first century um, Christian would have thought about. They would have immediately, most of them, gone to the games that would have been so common throughout the Grecian world, um, particularly in Corinth. And the crown would be a laurel wreath, uh, which would have died. It would have lasted like a a bouquet of flowers. It would be fresh and nice for for maybe a, a week, maybe two weeks at the most, and then it would just kind of wither away, and you'd throw it out at the end. Which again says for me that the crown is not the issue. It's what it represents that's the issue. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize? So run in a way that you might attain it. In other words, finish the race. At the very least, finish the race. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it To receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable eternal life I have fought the good fight I finished the race I've kept the faith though it's it's interesting and important to hear that through I finished the race I've kept the faith henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me and not only me also but all who have loved his appearing every Christian receive the crown of righteousness it's not for a select few and james then says something which i think we need to hear we will receive the crown of life which god has promised to those who love him i think loved ones we need to broaden our understanding of salvation we need to understand that as much as salvation is an event It's also a process that's worked out over time. We often find ourselves thinking about salvation in the past tense, right? I was saved on such and such a day. Have you been saved yet? And we look at it as an event that happens at some point in our life and for those of us in a past tense. And so it's very true that we might say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, past tense. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Or in another place, everyone who believes in the name of the Lord will be saved. But the Bible more often speaks of our future salvation. And there's a considerable amount of scripture that talks about how we are stimulated to live godly lives because salvation lies before us. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And you will be hated for my sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, each one of those tenses matters. It, it's important that you understand that at some point, you enter into the race. At some point, you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And, 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 the, and then when you do, you're saved but it's a process that is completed and proved and the genuineness is, is demonstrated that at the end, you endure to the end, you will be saved. We need to keep both of those Intention is Jesus says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will be, uh, can grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, the, the Bible talks about perseverance in our salvation. James is talking about endurance in our salvation this is why we endure because endurance proves the genuineness of our faith the fact that we're standing at the end of the process means that there is a genuineness to our faith and so James says he who has stood he was standing at the end of the trial will receive the crown of righteousness see we don't receive the crown for participation we receive the crown for completion. Got to wrestle that through, loved ones. The final thing. James talks about a relationship behind the trial. I, I, frankly, this caught me off guard. It really did. I, I, I don't know if I've ever thought about this very much, but notice he says, which God has promised. He doesn't say that you will receive the crown of life which God has promised. I mean, cool. No, the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. There's, a, there's so much that's behind those few little words. It is possible, Paul tells us, it's possible to endure trials without love. Uh, he talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in that, um, uh, that chapter on love. I think it's verse 3. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned but have not love I gain nothing so what James is saying is the crown of life is promised by God to those who walk with him those who trust him those who love him even though life is difficult and tough the crown of life is not promised to those who suffer it's promised to those who love God. I was thinking of this. We we talked about this a little while ago. Remember when the Satan comes before God and they talk about Job? And the Satan really says to God in the end of the day, um, Job doesn't really love you. He just He's just in your camp because of all the good things you give him. After all, look at, look at, look at how rich he is. Look at how... His family thrives. Look at how many camels he has, donkeys, servants he has. Of course he's going to say you're his God. Take that all away, and he'll abandon you in a second. And so God says, okay, take it all away. Just don't touch his life. And we know that God took it all away, and there's Job still worshiping God. Satan comes back to him and says, well, that's no big deal. But you take away his health. And then you'll really see what Job thinks about you. And so God says, okay, take away his health, but don't kill him. Takes away his health. And what do we find? Job worshiping the Lord. Naked I came into the world, and naked I will go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job loved God. It's one of the most succinct definitions you'll find anywhere in the Bible of a true Christian. Not that you give a lot of money. Not that you serve hours a week in the church. Not that you're a fine, upstanding person in the community. But that you love God. Our love for God is evidenced through our faithful endurance. I I suspect that as James is writing this, he was thinking about Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders. You might have... You might recall that back in Matthew chapter 22. They're always trying to trip up Jesus, and so finally they send one of the teachers of the law, a lawyer, after him. And they're sure and certain they're going to trip up Jesus now. You know, as the Pharisees understood it, there were 613 characters in the Hebrew of the Ten Commandments, and therefore they find, found 613 laws in the Pentateuch that people had to obey. And so they had all these laws, some of greater value, some of lesser value. And they thought, well, we're going to trip up Jesus here because we're going to get him to state the law that we should keep. And then we're going to say, ha, you're wrong. This is the one that you ought to keep. so they come and say, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment of them all? And you remember what Jesus says to them, don't you? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That is the first and the greatest commandment. And they should have known that because every morning they would have recited the Shemai Israel. Oh, hear, oh Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Every molecule in your being, completely, you ought to love. The Lord your God it's the motivation for everything that we do and so before everything and doing everything we are to love God so significant is that that Paul says if anyone does not love God let him be accursed so let me ask you a simple question how do you love God I I wrestled with this and I'm probably gonna get into trouble with this as we work through this a little bit but it's easy for me to say, you ought to love God with all your heart, mind, soul. It's easy for me to say that to myself. But what does it look like? What does it look like in your life for somebody to look at you and say, Wow, how they love God? This is some of the things I came up with and chastise me all along the way. But an all consuming passion for God a deep emotional attraction for god you see sometimes we 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 say love is a choice really so there's no feelings to love no i i think we ought to have deep feeling for god yeah there's a choice we choose to love god but it's not like our hearts are dispassionate the scripture tells us that we ought to delight in the lord that we ought to rejoice in the Lord that we ought to seek God for just the fullness of joy and for eternal pleasure and I I asked myself and has your heart ever fluttered for God many here are in relationships and I think most of you I hope and many of you can still talk about times where you look at your spouse and your heart just flutters a little bit and there's oh wow she's beautiful Oh wow. Why did you ever choose me? And there's just a little flutter that takes place. Does your heart ever flutter for God? What about loyalty and fidelity? To love God means to be loyal to him. To have no other lovers. The proof of my love for God, the demonstration of my love for God is my faithfulness to him. How can you say that a love that is unfaithful is love? You can't love God and have other lovers. You can't love God and play the field. You can't do it. So we love God by being loyal to Him and by being faithful to Him and by getting rid of all other loves in our lives. What about protection? You think, well, how do I protect God? Well, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Do you stand up for God? Do you defend defend God against those who blaspheme his name? See, love for God says, I will not stand by while his character and his work and his person is attacked. Do I love his name? Do I cringe when his name is used in vain? How can I turn the other way when somebody maligns them? My wife and I talk about this from time to time. You know, um, we don't have phones anymore. We have cell phones. But... You know, we would be having a disagreement. Usually, almost always, I'm wrong, and I mean that seriously. I, I do, but but I can talk wonderfully to you. You phone me. Oh, hi. Lila, how are you doing? We have a wonderful conversation, and my wife would say, why don't you talk to me like that? And she's right. Why do I put you before my wife? And so... Are we concerned for their feelings are we concerned for god when his name is dragged through the mud what about time spent with him if i truly love god i will spend time with him as david say better is one day in your court than thousands elsewhere how much time do you spend with god sunday brief visit hour and a half god that got ticked that one off imagine what your relationship would be like with somebody you loved if it consisted of an hour and a half two seconds here or text there you spend time with God I'm not giving you an outline for that but just do you spend time with God do you like being with him Psalm 27 4 I think that's the one I, yeah it is the one one thing I have asked is the one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's David's longing to just be with the Lord. What about communication? Do you talk with God often? Prayer. Do you spend time in prayer with God? Just conversing with him. Praying through the word with him. I'm probably getting in trouble again, but <laughs> I learn a lot from my wife about myself, this... One of the things that I find just about me is that when I am done a day, it's often been a long day and a full day, and I'm tired. I really am tired, and I come home, and Kathy and I have talked about this, and I just, I don't want to rehearse my day. But Kathy loves me, and she wants to know about my day. She doesn't want to know the details, and I don't share the details, but she just wants to know, who did you go out with, you know? Who did you see? what What went on? And... And so we had one of those moments last week and she and I just I just wasn't being communicative so I had a bright idea. I went to the office the next day and I took a, what do you call it, a photo um, in my iPhone, screenshot, thank you, of my calendar. I thought this was brilliant and I sent her a picture of my calendar (laughs) and you know what her response was? I'm not your secretary. (laughs) And she didn't mean that demeaning to my secretary. What she meant was, Paul, that's not what I want. What I want is time with you. I want to talk to you. And so that's a way we show love. So do you talk to God? Do you boast in the Lord? Pastor Barry talked about this last week, boasting in the Lord. And the final one, do you tell God that you love him? I don't know how many marriages that I'm aware of sometimes that they never tell each other anymore that they love them. Do you ever just look up into heaven and say, Oh, Father, how I love you? Grace, your mercy. You're with me in trials. I just love you, Father. I just need to tell you that today. See, the crown of life is promised to those who love Him. It's really just a challenge, again, of the genuineness of our faith. Are you in a loving relationship with God? And it's as you walk through that loving relationship with God that you will be able to endure trials. I just want to end on with this, a few thoughts now. One of the metaphors that the Bible gives us about walking in trials and through afflictions or about going through trials and afflictions is walking. To walk with God simply means just slow, steady progress. You know, don't accomplish a lot of ground in a lot of time, but you just make slow and steady progress. The point that I want us to hear today is that God is with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Just a reminder of the psalmist that God doesn't just say, okay, go. Uh, I'll, I'll see you at the end of the road. No, God walks with us. But now, says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and flame will not consume you. Fear not, for I am with you. I was thinking of this. um, I wanted to I wanted to spend a lot of time in Daniel chapter three. Um, If you're in a small group, you might get to do that because that's one of the questions, but um, remember there was a story of the idol and when the music played, they were supposed to fall down and worship the idol. And if you didn't fall down and worship the idol, you're thrown into a fire and um, these three boys resisted. And so they, they were brought to the king's attention. He says, really? Okay, we're gonna make this thing seven times hotter. And so they make it seven times hotter, so hot that when they go to throw these boys in there, the guys that throw them in there are killed. And so all of a sudden, and I, I like some of the other translations, the, the, the ESV says, and Kim Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up. It's, it's kind of just bland. I like the NIV. It says, and Kim, King Nebuchadnezzar jumped to his feet or leapt to his feet and he jumped up in alarm. Because he looked and he says to his his counselors, did we not cast three men bound in the fire? And the answer and said to the king, true, O king. Duh. And the king says to them, well, I see four men standing and walking around and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. That's God walking with those three boys in the trial. It's a visual reminder to us of God walking with us in the trial. And you see, Daniel chapter three looks back to Isaiah 43. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, for I will be, be with you. And it looks ahead to the incarnation, to the coming of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the lengths to which God will go through to be with us in the trial. See, we remember, do we not, the, the fact that God, Christ, Jesus, had been living in unimaginable glory for eternity with the Father. And then when he came to earth, his entire life was like walking in the furnace. Think for a moment about the birth of Christ. The incarnation, we call it. We're coming up to it. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. God entered into our space and time. He took on flesh and blood. He took on finiteness, weakness, humanity. His whole life was lived under constant pressure and stress. He was often attacked. He was constantly misunderstood. He was rejected. He was hated and it all culminated in his death on the cross. And so God knows what it means to be with you in your trial. He knows what it's like to like to live through and experience the miseries of this world. He understands. And in trials, God is with you. He is available to help you. He's there to give you wisdom. He's to be depended on as you go through that. He walks with you. And James sort of adds a, a little bit of another switch to it where he says, And we are to walk with him. Count it all joy. Let endurance have its way boast in him consider yourselves blessed love him no matter what the situation is that you find yourself in and this all matters because we know we know we've observed this that suffering has two possibilities the furnace can do two things it can harden and consume and we know those who have been broken by suffering or it can purify and It can bring out the best in us and we can grow in suffering. We are able to endure trials because we know that Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for us so that under the various trials that we face in life, he is with us. One of the things I encourage you is remind yourself of the gospel when you go through a trial. Remind yourself of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, if when you're going through a trial, you think that, well, God only saves those who are pleasing to him and live a good life. If that's your view, when suffering hits you, you're either going to hate God or you're going to hate yourself. Either you're going to say, man, I've lived a good enough life. I don't deserve this, God. You've done me wrong. Or you will say, man, it's my fault. I I just didn't do what God wanted me to do. I didn't live up to his expectations for my life, so he's whacking me for it. Either way, you'll go into despair. So when you forget the gospel as you go through a trial, you're either going to be angry at God or you're going to be full of guilt in your own life. But if you say, when you're thrown into the furnace of fire, this is my furnace, I, I get it, this is a trial. But I'm not being punished for my sins. And I'm not being punished because of my failure to reach up to certain expectations. Because Jesus has already borne all of that for me. He has borne the wrath of God, He has borne the weight of my sins upon Himself on the cross. And if he went through that great fire steadfastly for me then surely I can go through this smaller trial steadfastly for him. And that as I trust him as I love him as he endure this trial will only make me better. Oh loved ones put your hope in the gospel as you face various trials. Father I thank you for your word this morning and I pray that it will be a help To us, your people, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.